Go ahead and have a seat, guys. I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. One of the things I think it's really helpful to understand about growth in Christ as we begin to grow up as Christians is that um, growth, I don't think, often happens the way that we think it's going to. I think we often think we're going to like cross some sort of line and then things never really look back. But Christian growth is always two steps forward and one step back. And you will always feel weak. And I think that's part of what keeps our dependence on God. I always thought there would be this day where I sort of realized like more of the Holy Spirit was on me. And I've come to realize that actually when you are in Christ, you have 100% of the Holy Spirit. It's not like I get 80% and you get 40 and she's got 20 and he's got 90. It's not how it works. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The difference is how much our eyes are actually open to see it. And how much our spirit is open to embrace the fact that God is at work within us. I think one of the times in my life I was the most reminded of this, I was actually going back to Vancouver and I was meeting a bunch of friends and they said, well, let's go meet at this pool hall. So we met at this pool hall and we loved playing billiards and we just grabbed a couple beers and we were going to this table to sit down and we go down to the pool tables and this really different looking lady comes up to me and she stares me straight in the eyes and says, you have Jesus. And him, and him, and him, and not him, him, not him, and him. And our group nailed everybody. And the other guys would have told you, I'm not a Christian. Like, they are not believers at all. And I turned to her and I said, how did you do that? And she said, I've grown up in my family, and my family's a family of, of witch doctors. I'm, I'm First Nations, Native American, you would call it here in the States. And she said, and we play with spirits, and I never knew what we were actually doing until I became a follower of Christ. And she said, I just thought that you should know that when you walk into a room... I saw every demon in this place flee to the other side. I was so baffled by that experience. I was so baffled by that experience because I, wasn't, I didn't go there to evangelize. I went to go play pool. Just live my life. And I had no idea that the, the, the strength and the evidence of God in us is so profound and powerful that the principalities and powers of this world run and flee because of the Christ that is in you. I think they have a greater understanding of how powerful the Christ is in you than even you do. You know, like when Jesus first showed up places and all the demons would like scream and freak out, nobody had figured out who Jesus was yet. And all the demons are fleeing and running. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? They would say. And I just want you to know that the evil one, I think, is often feeding you a whole lot of lies. And if you're experiencing any growth in Christ at all right now, I think he's going to put a big target on your back and try to feed you a whole bunch of lies and tell you that you aren't growing as much as you really are. I just wanted to tell you that this morning to encourage you. And that line in that song made me think about that. I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. You may be feeling weak, but the spirit of God is strong in you. Just want to share that quickly with you this morning, and also just by way of um, encouragement, if it's of help to anybody else, um, I had talked to Pete about this beforehand. We've been talking all about identity, and um, one of the things that I have to do at Dort in my job is help out with a, a freshman class where everybody comes in, and all the freshmen kind of go through this process of searching out my identity and what's God doing in the world and His kingdom and calling, like what am I called to do and how am I called to find my place in the world. 
And so um, I had an invite a couple of years ago to, to write a book on this with um, the director of faith formation in the Christian Reformed Church, a man by the name of Sid Helma that I look up to a ton. So um, we wrote a book together called Vivid, and I brought this along. If you're looking for a tool, a resource in your life right now that might help you out moving from identity to what comes next, um, I got a bunch of them up here. There's a basket. Um, it costs us five bucks to make these. Um, anything above and beyond that that we ever get, um, I use to help fund missions projects. So um, if you're looking for a resource, or if you actually have no money right now, I don't care. Someone else will put five bucks in. Just grab one if you really need something. Um, but for the rest, um, I'd love to, if you could contribute just at least five bucks. Um, they've sold so far like in the dozens. It's like a big deal. I'm just kidding. If it's of any help to you, there's the offer. Will you join me in prayer? God, we are grateful for your work within us, whether we can acknowledge it, whether we can see it, or whether we can't. You saved us and you claimed us before we knew how to name you. You give us every breath, whether we acknowledge you for it or not. You are moving when we can't see it. You are loving even when we don't even know how to articulate it. God, help us to to know better and better what it means to move more fully into you. To be free in you. To be able to know that you are our God and you are delighting in us, your kids. That you love us as much as you love Jesus. And that you're calling us into a greater and greater picture of a more vivid life. Father, thank you for this and for all your work. Thank you that you're not done with us yet. In Jesus' name. Amen. You guys ever been to one of these places? Okay. So you walk in the door. There's three sizes you can order. What are they? Like it? Love it? Gotta have it. This is like a summary statement of American consumerism in three sizes. Like it? Love it? Gotta have it. Cold Stone Creamery exploded on the scene several years ago. In the first six years, they went from 75 to 1,000 stores. At their peak, they were opening one new store every day in America. As if we didn't already have enough ice cream. (laughs) Americans consume enough ice cream each year to provide clean water for every single person in the entire world. If you were to take the money that we spend on ice cream in the ice cream industry, we could provide clean water to every single person in the world. You'd think that we already had enough, but we always find room for more, right? Like ice cream fits between the cracks. Ice cream is like the example of our greed. It is the world's absolute limitless resource. You can never find the bottom of it. You can never have enough. This is part of what is a movement inside of us. I mean, if you ever want to feel bad about yourself, because I know we often do, Go to a shopping mall. This is like the most depressing place in the world. You'll never be more miserable than when you go shopping. Because you walk in and then you didn't even know you didn't need everything until you walk in and you're like, I never knew that shirt even existed. It must be in my wardrobe. And you like have to have it. You go from like not even knowing something existed to wanting it so quickly. This is sort of just this movement and this progression that takes place within us. I prided myself on never having a cell phone until I took a job at Dort College a couple years ago. And then because I needed to be on call in the middle of the night for students in crisis situations, they made me have to get a cell phone. And I was so sad. 
And then I went from like not just getting a phone to like getting a great phone to um, getting a phone with a data plan to getting um, a smartphone to getting like the newest smartphone like the day it comes out. And like that progression happened really fast within me. I went from like the no cell phone guy to like gotta have the best cell phone like real quick. Do you have stuff in your life that you do this with? We get introduced to new ideas and we move from just awareness of it to needing to have it so quick. And because we have more resources at our disposal financially than anybody else in the world, we can move towards a process of entitlement faster than anybody else. And I think this is just something we have to be able to acknowledge about who we are. Come on, next picture. Do you remember the first time you ever saw a commercial for a Snuggie? I remember the first time I ever saw this commercial and I thought to myself, that is the stupidest thing I have ever seen. There's this woman under a blanket trying to get a TV remote, right? And she's like squirming around. Like it's some sort of catastrophe going on. She can't find the remote. What's going to happen to her? When I was a kid, we didn't even have TV remotes. My dad told me to get up and walk to the TV and change the channel every time. I'm not kidding. That's really how I grew up. And, but I remember seeing this commercial and the first time I was like, that is so dumb. And then the second time I saw the commercial, I was like, well, they look kind of like comfy. I mean... Right? And then the next time I see it, I'm like, well, I mean, I might put one on my Christmas list, and it'd be kind of cool. And then I don't get one at Christmas, even though it was on my Christmas list. And then I'm thinking, I wish, well, now I know that my family doesn't love me. <laughs> and we go through this process, right? And it was amazing. It went from the dumbest thing in the world to something I was like, oh, I mean, on Sunday afternoons watching football, it'd be kind of cool. Do you do this with stuff? There's a consumer progression within us. First, you get introduced to the thought. And then after a while, the thought becomes a hope. Like, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll be able to get that. Like, it makes it somewhere on your little mental wish list. So we go from a thought to a hope. And then hope grows up a little bit more and turns into an expectation. Like, I should have this. Like, everybody else has one of these. I mean, I bet 60% of the kids in my class have them. And I mean, well, certainly everybody who's cool, at least. So, Mom, please, like, I'm going to be like a loser if I don't have this. And we kind of get this expectation, and then expectation finally becomes totally mature when it arrives at a place of entitlement. Like, I deserve this. Like, something is wrong. There is a great injustice in the world because I don't have this. And this is something that each one of us, I think, has to push back against because this is sort of the idol factory that exists within us. We're not comfortable with that terminology. We don't like talking about things that we want in life like idols. But I think that's probably the most accurate way to describe them. I was flipping through Twitter last week, and I came across this from a guy I follow named Shane Claiborne, one of my favorite authors. He said, Gandhi was once asked why he rode third class when traveling by train. His response, because there is no fourth class. Entitlement is a disease. We start to move up some sort of hierarchical ladder of expectation in our lives that that we get to, should have more than we really deserve. And we start to put hopes and we attach them to these things like they're going to bring us something in life that's more than they're really supposed to bring. From Psalm 115, 
Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. He's talking about the things of this world, the physical things of the earth. You have to understand that when this was written... And when, even when the book of Genesis was written, how right there, the Israelites are coming into contact with the Canaanites, with the Egyptians, with the Babylonians, with the Assyrians, and all of these peoples around them have multiple idols. They have a plethora of gods. And of course, each of these gods are represented by something that's made out of wood or gold or stone or marble, and they're all carved out. But you've got to think about it. If you're going to make a god, like an idol, right, and you're going to put it somewhere, at some point in time it has to go from being a chunk of wood to an actual God, like it has to be deified somehow. And so what they would do in the ancient world is the artist would begin to make this item, this God, whatever it was going to be, and then they would put it in the temple, and as soon as it was in the temple place, they'd have this ceremony where the high priest would come in, and he would breathe on it, and supposedly that was the moment when the God actually became not just a chunk of wood or stone anymore, but an actual God. This was the practice throughout the ancient world historically. Now consider, if that's the way the world knows idol creation and gods become made, think about how the story of Genesis 2 is explained to us. God forms us out of the dust of the earth and then breathes his breath into us. Can you imagine for everybody who heard that for the very first time? It's like the process of the entire world flipped exactly backwards. You don't give God life. God gives you life. God sustains you. And then God goes on to tell the Israelites in passages like this one, those people who follow those processes, who are trying to breathe life into inanimate objects, like this is what we try to do when we put our hope in material things. When we think, if I just had this, if I just made this much money, if I just had that car, I think we're kind of like those guys back in the olden times who are trying to breathe life back into something that's inanimate. Like, this will be my hope. This will be my security. It's like blowing into a balloon that's got a hole on the other side. It's like this exhausting process that's just never, ever, ever going to complete itself. It just flat out falls apart. But as I meditated on this passage, I realized that I think the opposite is also true. Like if those who make the gods become like them, then when we actually worship and give our lives in total surrender to the God, we become more like Him. You become like the idols that you serve. And if we are moving into a greater dependence upon God, you are becoming more like God in that process. Because the truth is, you can never erase the fact that we are all religious. We were all made to worship something. Even an atheist has a belief system. They believe that there is no God. That is a belief system. We all have a belief system. We have to be honest about that. And so if we're going to take these, if you're going to try to let an idol die in your life, you can only simply replace it with something else. We need to move from a sense of false comfort, false security, the idolatries that we really have, and replace that with a greater amount of work of the Holy Spirit within us. 
That's where the rest of the psalm goes. Listen to where attention needs to be paid. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We will lose life when we move away from God. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Every time we choose something other than God, we become less human. I do a lot of workshops in college and in area high schools on pornography, so I, that's why I picked this shirt today from Fight the New Drug to put on. Because you know, at the end of the day, you know what's really wrong with porn? At the end of the day, what's really wrong with porn isn't that it shows us too much sex. I think what's really wrong with porn is that it doesn't show us enough sex. It doesn't show us the whole picture. It dehumanizes people. It strips the person on the other side of whatever it is that you're looking at, of their humanity, of their image bearing, of the fact that their life is complex, that maybe their mom is wrestling with cancer, maybe they're struggling at home, maybe they're a single parent trying to provide for a child in the only way that they know how. Maybe they've been abused, and we don't want to know their story. We want to objectify them, and when we can do that with people, we keep them at a distance. And then we can objectify people. We do it with celebrities. We do it with enemies on the other side of the world. We do it with pornography. It steals their humanity. And this is the sick and twisted part about it then. It steals our own. It makes us less human because we've bought into a process of believing that something can satisfy us that was never meant to deliver. So the problem with porn isn't that it shows us too much sex. It's that it doesn't show us enough. It's only part of the picture. And it's like the heart of God is crying out the whole time for his kids. I wanted more than this for you. I wanted more than this for you. I want your heart to fall asleep on your pillow at night, dreaming about a world that looks like the kingdom of God breaking in, and not the lake house that you want, or the next brand of car that would move you up the ladder at work. I don't give a rip about those things. I want you to look like me, and I want to give you life. I want you to be so content that nothing can take it away from you. That your identity is just simply found and you are whole and you are alive and you are breathing deep and your arms are for what they create. I created them for and your heart is moving in a way that I created it for and your eyes don't just see the physical things around you and desire them, but your eyes see the brokenness of the world and your mind imagines what healing would look like for it. I wanted more than this for you. I wanted more than this for you. Growing up all my life, I actually thought that becoming more of a Christian meant less life. I really did. And I think that's one of Satan's best lies. The Christians are these people who are fenced in, looking outside at the rest of the world that's having way more fun than we are. I remember hearing God's voice the moment when he really got a hold of my life. And I just remember hearing that over and over again. I wanted more than this for you, Aaron. And every time I'm caught and trapped up in sin again, I hear God's voice. Aaron, I wanted more than this for you. We think sin is a little bit more. It's it's getting to indulge in something. But every time it makes us less human. It steals from us. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Here's the antidote now. House of Aaron. I love that line. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. All you who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Israel, of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. God's antidote to the idols of the world is blessing. Full abundance. Christianity is not a less than version of life. It is the more than.
This is what Jesus starts talking about too, okay? I'm going to flip ahead. I think my batteries are going. Oh, technology. Okay, so the first time Jesus ever gets up on the Sabbath to preach, he could pick anything to be able to say, God is here. This is what he chooses. This is the scroll of Isaiah that he pulls out. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' self-description. We have all these other people throughout history talking about, we write theology books, we're like, this is who God is. We listen to sermons telling us, this is who God is. This is Jesus telling us, this is who I am. This is what I'm all about. This is what I came for. I came to put people back together again. And for everybody who's enslaved, I came to set them free. For everybody whose humanity has been taken from them, I came to give it back. Jesus' cousin John, of course, is called to go before him. And John's trying to wonder at some point in time, is this the Messiah? Is this what we were waiting for? And so there's this passage where he sends guys running to Jesus to ask him, are you the Messiah? Or should it be someone else? This is the passage that tells the story. John's disciples told him about these things, calling to them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers. This is what Jesus says. This is his self-description now. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus shows up and is in the building when that stuff is happening. And the rest of the world needs to continue to hear this from us. The proof that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is when his people are all about the stuff that Jesus said he would be about. When we are about the restoration of humanity... When you see somebody marginalized and you find a way to help them simply come back to the center. When your heart breaks for someone who is lonely and you befriend them. When we move into the margins and the places of injustice in the world and help people get put back together again and restore humanity and give life back the way God intended it. That's when Jesus shows up. That's how Jesus self-described the arrival of his ministry. You will know I am here. Not when a bunch of Christians get together, huddle to themselves, and come up with a whole bunch of clever arguments of how to tell people that Jesus is the only way. They come up with really clever books and deep theological arguments, and then they debate them with one another. No, 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 no. We go when we put people back together. We go when we put creation back together and restore it in right relationship with the Father. We put people and families back together. We put marriages back together. We put friendships back together. We foolishly believe in the reconciliation of all things because that's what Jesus was about. That is our work. That is our calling. That is how you become alive. You want to feel a little bit more in this life? Make your life about those things. You want to come alive in a way that a car or a house or no one physical thing can never deliver and never give you? That's what you and I got to be about. That is the program of Jesus for the redemption of all things. Jesus wants to recreate us. Jesus wants to make us new. 
Every time another kid at Dort comes in and says, Aaron, I'm really struggling with this. Pornography has got a hold of my life. What do I need to do? And we talk about what God does in order to make us new. That God sets us free. God gives us our humanity back. God recreates us again and again. And I tell them that every night when you sleep, there are 200 million new brain cells created in your brain. God has the ability to make us new even as we sleep. His mercies are new every morning. Whatever it is that you believe has enslaved you in sin in this world... God has the ability to make you new. God actually has designed even our minds. I don't know if you knew this. There is a layer of fluid between our skull and our brain matter. And it actually, when you sleep at night, it washes. God washes, bathes, and showers your brain as you sleep. He makes you new. He creates 200 million new cells. He is recreating you every single day if we will give ourselves over to the process of Christ's redemption. Listen to what Jesus says when he finally meets up with all the disciples now on the other side of the grave. He has conquered death. He's come to give them something new. This is the greatest moment in history. The world's about to get turned on its head. And Jesus enters into a room with his disciples. And I want you to see what he says when he gets there. On that evening on the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then here's the line. And with that, he breathed on them. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He is purposely echoing Genesis 1. As significant as it was when everything was made and God breathed life into it. Now on the other side of death, I'm breathing life back into you again. Eternal life. This one cannot be taken from you anymore. I think Jesus is purposely echoing Genesis chapter 2. I am making you new again. I am making you new again. I will never stop making you new. Because I made you for more than this. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful that while our own greed has no limits, that neither does your grace, that you are not done with us, that you wanted more than this for us, that every picture of the kingdom you paint is more than we can imagine, that even to understand your love is a supernatural act. Father, if we were to take all the things that we put our hope and security in in this world and pile them up front, it would be huge. Father, we don't need our constructed idols. We need you. Father, set us free from our incurably religious hearts that crave the things of this world, that long for the created and not the creator. Father, this day and in this moment, breathe new life in us again. Call us your own. And may your truth just seep a little bit deeper into our hearts this morning. As we learn one step at a time to trust more fully in you. Amen. Will you guys stand and sing with us as we close?